Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one -on -one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. But before we get this show on the road, I want to say a quick thank you to GPS Radar for making this episode possible. GPS Radar is the members-only website where leading fashion brands and media connect. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now, and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. If you're a woman working in fashion today, might I suggest Ruth Chapman, the co-founder of MatchesFashion.com, as a role model. Not only did she build up her fashion empire with her husband Tom from scratch, with a single brick and mortar store she opened in Wimbledon in southwest London 30 years ago, she turned it into one of the leading independent luxury e-commerce players in the industry. Under her guiding hand, MatchesFashion.com became known for its nurturing and dedicated support of young designers, with a healthy dose of national pride in highlighting homegrown British brands as well as having a highly curated and clever selection of some of the most influential international luxury labels from around the globe. A selection that directly reflected the desires of a clientele that is also very international and endlessly looking for new discoveries and high quality designs. All of this is very admirable indeed, but what is perhaps just as indicative of who Ruth is, is the warm and family-like working environment she has fostered within the company over those three decades which saw more than a few staffers starting out as interns and moving up through the ranks of the company as it grew into a global player. In 2017, the company released its financial results for the first time, revealing a 61% year-on-year growth and a full-year revenue for 2016 at an impressive £204 million. Also last year, Ruth and her husband decided it was time for new challenges, and they sold their majority stake in the company they started to the private equity firm Apex. Although the exact amount of the sale has not been disclosed, rumor on the street is that it was in the region of 800 million pounds. I spoke with Ruth while she was in Paris attending a few fashion shows during the latest round of ready-to-wear shows. We talked about what it is like to leave a good job to follow your dream, how building a great team around you is the best way to be successful, and what she wants to do with the next chapter of her life. After our conversation, I felt like Ruth was pretty much the living proof that women really can have it all and look absolutely amazing doing it. Okay, Ruth, well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate this. So I want to go back a little bit, um, well, not a little bit, all the way back um, and yes. talk about your childhood and growing up and yes. what kind of, what was that like? And can you tell me, give me a little bit of background for maybe people who don't know your amazing history. Okay, well, I was surrounded by strong women. Hmm. Um, I had a very glamorous grandmother who was quite matriarchal. I was, um, I had a, a very glamorous mother had a very glamorous stepmother, so I was always um, interested in what they were wearing, mm. really interested, and they were always accessorized or wearing the thing, you know, and I remember very clearly, especially for my stepmother, who was quite formative and quite there a lot, because um, I stayed with my father when my parents separated, separated. which mm. was unusual, so my stepmother yeah. was quite influential. And I remember all those 70s things that she wore all the time and the lurex and the crochet and the big hats. And it was all, it's all still very much 
there. Was that was she into all of the designer stuff, or was she working with what she had? I mean, I think she was working with what she had. I don't remember any designer names being mm-hmm. flagged around. Mm-hmm. Um, although I'm sure there were some there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it was it was quite fabulous to see. When did you end up? Um, at what age? Because um, I'm curious about like formative years. What age did you um, go and live with your father and your stepmother? Then I went to live with my father and stepmother when I was five. Okay. Oh yeah. So right from the start, almost. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, along those same lines, um, how did those women influence your style then? More of fascination mm. with, and it was you know I think my fashion fascination with fashion is really anthropological I'm really interested in and ergonomic as well I'm really interested in how our lives are changing and how fashion changes and adapts to that so I think being at the helm of a business like matches fashion and having such a strong team Mm -hmm. of women and some men in there too it was my role became because they're so adept at this more about saying hey do you think that this new size iPad well, how do you think that's going to influence our handbags or mm-hmm. do you think that that new length of skirt is going to how will that impact the boots that are come that we're going to see mm-hmm. so things like that more being more like being a sort of protagonist for what thing how things might influence other things hmm. so it's like a like a big picture, big picture. thinking mm-hmm. so um, you were talking about the anthropological yes. um, stuff what and in this last decade, let's just yeah. talk about that. Have you seen as a progression of the way that women have changed? Granted, you've been doing this for 30 years? Yes, more. More than yes. 30 years? So, yes. But let's talk about more recent history. Where mm-hmm. are you seeing the biggest shifts in the, what women wear or how they dress? Okay, the biggest two shifts that I think we talk about are, well, there are three, really. The number one is travel. Mm-hmm. I think that, and, and the number two is the sort of polarization of wealth, I guess, because mm the more wealthy and there's no doubt that the wealthy western part of our planet is getting wealthier Mm -hmm. the more they have to spend the more they travel and then they need clothes for all parts of their life so for their holiday for their romance for their work Mm -hmm. which is also a big factor and the amount of working women but the other um thing that's really influenced is digital and what we carry and um what we need to carry with us so in terms of a phone or um, how often we're online and that's affecting behavior obviously hugely in terms of shopping Mm -hmm. but also in terms of what we carry Mm -hmm. which is obviously handbags or or a must. business, yeah. Pockets. Yeah, pockets. <laughs> pockets and handbags. Pocket exactly. and handbags. Yes. Um, and do you think that, so are we talking, when we're talking about women who travel, we're talking about um, versatile clothing that can go from one weather to another or, or yes. you know, reversible or I don't know. Or, or how designers are thinking about the woman's wardrobe in terms of, you know, when I started in this, there were two seasons a year mm. and you'd show winter now and you'd just see coats and sheepskins and boots and some dresses long sleeve etc and then you know this morning seeing Chloe what you see is a lot of different weights and different textures and coats and thinking about you know there's no necessity to think about one climate Mm -hmm. she's obviously thinking about women all over the world who are traveling who need to be able to pack things Mm -hmm. layer things get them out in different climates be prepared for it to be minus two in paris or yeah snowing in london and then yeah or whatever in new york Mm -hmm. so 
all of that comes into play. Mm -hmm. And you know, thinking about Australia, because digital has given us this global customer, mm -hmm. and thinking about Australia as well, because they're now the seasons in a are completely flipped. different season, and it's it's a big market. Mm -hmm. So every designer who's doing well, I think, is thinking like that on a global scale. Yeah, global traveling scale. Global global travel. Scale. So what was that? first moment you you know you your both your mother and your grandmother and your stepmother were amazing women who yes. dressed to the nines um do you have a moment where you really yourself felt the power of fashion like it's transformative power or was there a moment in your own history where you're like you put something on and you just felt yeah. I, I don't know i remember that my first real designer purchase i remember it really clearly because i was buying vogue mm -hmm. british vogue and hoovering it up every time and then there was this dress and it was when Betty Jackson was at Quorum which was way back in the day mm -hmm. and it was it was a purple dress <laughs> <laughs> the sinful the least favorite color, color. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of mandarin and it was linen and I remember and I, I wasn't living in London at the time so I remember phoning up the store Quorum ordering it from them and I think I was 15 mm. then posting it to me sending a check I mean it was ridiculous yeah like the and seven then, steps yeah, for that one. Yeah. and then posting it to me and um, I had this dress and I remember wearing it out and I remember feeling so great in that dress mm. and that was that was the moment I think that I thought yeah this is it this is what you want to do with yeah. your life and so then how did that come about was it meeting with Tom your yes. husband yes. or so can you talk about well, that that meet cute that moment the two of you guys connected <laughs> We met through a friend. Mm -hmm. we, I was sharing a flat with a girlfriend who was best friends with his girlfriend at the time. Ooh. I know. Who's now godmother to one of our children and an amazing person. Um, and he, I remember him coming to the room and I was wearing at the time, so I always remember these moments, and it was purple. <laughs> <laughs> Purple's actually your lucky color. <laughs> I remember I'd been modeling in a show for a friend that was Croydon... College of Arts final show mm -hmm. um, and I was wearing I bought one of the pieces that one of the students had made which was a purple mohair tracksuit can you believe oh my god quite itchy. and he still wanted to get out with you with a purple mohair tracksuit <laughs> I'm impressed yeah. Tom gets points just for that <laughs> and I think we immediately didn't hit it off but we were very intrigued by each other hmm. and the intrigue stayed and then this dating romance began mm -hmm. and then the most stupid thing I've ever done in my life is give up my great job in video when video was a digital thing mm -hmm. huge and new um, and take a, like a 30% cut in salary to go and work with him because he was about to open this business with his sister that was unisex inexpensive t-shirts and jeans and things and they were painting the store and doing all this thing. And then his sister met someone, whirlwind relationship. They said they were going to get married and she was going to move to Bournemouth. So Tom was like, oh, thanks. I can't do this for my own. So he said, will you come and help me? So I did. And that was probably the most stupid thing I could ever do because I was dating this guy. And, you know, it was then it was quite tempestuous for a while. Oh, but wait, was, so was that the start of matches? Yes. So that, that's, yes. that store. So you... 
Wow, 30% pay cut for, um, that's, yeah. It's interesting you said the stupidest thing you've ever done, and yet? And yet, exactly. But I was, I started working on Saturdays, and I was clearly very good at this, Mm -hmm. and I was helping him with buying strategies, because he had no one to help him, but I had no, I'd worked in Jaeger Mm -hmm. as a holiday job, Mm -hmm. and I'd really enjoyed it and really enjoyed the sales part and understood about visual merchandising and all those kind of things which actually were hugely influential back in the day mm-hmm. um, the store s- windows and yeah. yeah I mean they seem like the easiest thing in the world but once you know there's a formula you can just apply it and it's it's like gold dust really mm-hmm. and so how did how did you convince big brands to come and work with you because, uh, in, you know, shops in London. I mean, how was that? How were you able to grow a, a business? You were a quote unquote yeah. mom and pop company. How yes. did that, yes. how did that come about? What was the strategy? Well, I think because we started in Wimbledon, mm. that was quite good because no one else was doing it. Mm. Um, and Tom has this lovely saying, he says, when you have a store in Wimbledon, you really learn to hug your customers because you don't have a lot of footfall. So mm. that early store, we and Tom was quite genius because he had even run in the like mid 80s we had um, computers Mm. so we were taking customers addresses so the minute email became like a thing Mm -hmm. we just wrote to them white mail and said can we have your email addresses and we got a lot so when we actually launched online which was maybe like 11 years ago now or 12 years ago Mm -hmm. We had a whole bunch of emails that we were emailing about. A database ready to rock. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that was quite great. Mm -hmm. And also internationally as well. So it was good. Okay, so sorry to be so... (laughs) Did you just say you launched online 11 years ago? Yes. Well, maybe it was even longer. I'm trying to think. It must be 11 years ago. That's an insane uh, success story coming from... You had 14 brick-and-mortar stores around at at that time? At the heights of bricks and mortar. Yeah. Yeah. And then... um, to make the leap into, first of all, to make the leap into such an early t- 2006? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah 2006. So 2006, um, what made you decide to, because I've talked to like Natalie Massonet and she's like, yeah. I couldn't get it in the door. People wouldn't. So do you think that you had the brick and mortar made people more trusting to like go ahead and do online with well, you? Well, I mean, I think Natalie's journey was quite different. Yeah. Um, I think ours was more, we always had a very international customer shopping with us. So whenever our... Australian ladies were in mm-hmm. town or Canadian or American or wherever Hong Kong wherever they were from mm-hmm. they'd come in and they'd say oh, we wish we you'd open in wherever mm. and then so when online started we were like mm, shall we maybe maybe not maybe and then we we just thought without any strong strategy um, let's do it and let's put our inventory up online and then so we launched Tom did made this created the site with a great user journey, mm-hmm. and we launched and we put everything up online. And um, I guess the brands just thought, well, it's a little store in Wimbledon, and you know, can't hurt, can't hurt. Yeah. Um, and so we we launched, and we hadn't bought more inventory for this at all. And suddenly, people in Australia could buy it without visiting us. And we just so that season, mm-hmm. we sold everything way too quickly. And then we realized, oh, well, we need to buy more for this. So we started to... Doubling uh, down on purchase. Exactly. So for the store and yes. online. And especially on key things that we saw internationally on the runway. You know, I remember Stella putting out this kitten heel mm-hmm. that was obviously going to be the thing everybody wanted. And if you trust your gut and you trust your instinct, and you just go, okay, we're going to need loads of that 
yes mm-hmm. and, and we did and it sold um have you always trusted your gut it yes. sounds like you have yes yeah and natalie kingham who's buying director now totally trusts her gut mm. um i mean it's a really we call it a really clever blend of magic and logic so you use the data mm-hmm. but i think the one thing that is really important and i think the old model of say a department store mm-hmm. buying for fashion is okay we sold a hundred of that trouser last season so let's buy it again and actually customer doesn't want it if they've already got, got it. it exactly but you've got to find the reason for them to buy into something new mm-hmm. and i think that's what clever designers do Come and up that's with what something clever new. buyers do is like think ah I haven't seen that for a good long time or that feels very fresh mm-hmm. or that feels very new and cu- the customer's really going to want it so putting your money where your gut is and you really. you mentioned uh, I kind of my ears picked yes. perked up with uh, you track the data or follow the data how are, mm. how are you using data big data to help you know the, there's the magic and then there's the logic, the logic part. part how's and how's that weaved in because that also is kind of new with the social and with yes. the yeah yeah i mean any good e-commerce business has data on mm-hmm. where their customers are living what they like to buy um and they can track we can track it from a, the perspective of sell-throughs mm-hmm. we can also track it globally and what kind of products people are liking in say Korea mm-hmm. versus London. Um, so the buyers go out with a head full of that mm-hmm. and it's from a macro scale right down to, you know, depending on how curious they are and how much they want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they just apply it. Mm-hmm. And it is about having a really good buyer work with a really good merchandising team too. Mm-hmm. And the merchandise say, merchandisers will give their opinion mm-hmm. and say that I think that might be a risk or that might be a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Well, talking about that partnership between um, buyer and merchandiser, where, what is the partnership between you and Tom? <clears throat> you and Tom, like, do you each have your area of strength? Do you guys complement each other? Or are you both on one area really passionate about one particular thing? How does that shake out? Um, well, the first thing is we're not involved Any, now, day anymore. Day yes, day to day. Co chairman, right? No, we're not. No, even, not even no, anymore. Advisors. Advisors and, now. Yeah. Okay. So, um, which is nice because we're actually getting to know each other in a completely different context now, away from work. Which I want to hear about that. Okay. Um, but in the in the day, as it was, Tom is really an interesting blend of data. He's incredibly numerate, the most numerate person I've ever met, and he can look at a spreadsheet or a P&L or anything, and he can find the error or find in, I mean, super quick, mm-hmm. a really smart businessman. But he also has this really great creative side of his brain. Mm-hmm. So early on, I think we kind of carved it up mm-hmm. in a way that felt very, felt very natural because I'm not a numerate. I mean, I can add up. Obviously, yeah. I've got, you know, I can balance the checkbook. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, <laughs> But mine was more customer centric, mm-hmm. although Tom's was very customer centric too. The fashion part, mm-hmm. um, telling the story, getting to the bottom of the story, which I really like. And I think that's where digital's been so interesting in the customer picking up a story really quickly about mm. a brand. And that can be compelling too. So I've done that, and he has done, I mean, his skill set is quite broad so he's done finance marketing Mm -hmm. e-commerce 
and he's done publishing back in the day when we mm -hmm. had a magazine. He's really good at that. Um, you know, look and feel of things. He has a great taste level. So, and he's quite informed about art and culture and all those things. So he can reference all those things. And mm -hmm. so it was. That's how we sort of split it. Okay. When I was sort of doing the buying part, mm -hmm. and then I'd sit on meetings and. We're very unafraid to challenge each other as well, which is important. And we always have been like, I don't think this, I don't think that. And mm -hmm. in the end, we'll find a way forward with it. Okay, so you, we, we yeah. touched on this earlier. 2016, I think you there was the first time you guys, the company sh uh, matches showed its you know financial results, yes. like 61% growth, something yes. ridiculous like that, yes. like over 200 million pounds. I, guess. Yes. I have the figure here somewhere. Yeah. Um, and then last year you sold the majority stake. Yes. So what is life like now for you? Um, really cool. I mean, it's <laughs> so great. I mean, I feel, I mean, I'm 56 now, but I feel young. Mm. So it's great to be able to do something different and mm -hmm. to have some more time on our hands mm -hmm. is really great. Um, comes with a different set of, you know, things to think about, mm -hmm. which is good. Um, and I'm thinking about all sorts of things like going back to school, helping and thinking about little businesses that we can help or guide or mm -hmm. steer. Mm -hmm. um, Fashion businesses or something completely different? Sometimes completely different. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've just invested in this really cool brand, Universal Standard, which is doing really cool things mm. um, in a kind of size inclusive world and it's quite disruptive. Mm -hmm. And I'm really impressed with them. Um, so we're doing that. We're having more holidays. Mm -hmm. um, we're having more family time. And, and you're moving to LA. You're going for the we're sunshine, not, right? Yeah, we're not moving there. Completely, I'm not completely. But okay. We have got we have got a house there mm -hmm. now, which we're doing up, which mm -hmm. has an amazing view, and we really love the lifestyle. So mm -hmm. we love that laid back, mm -hmm. Californian, warm. Mm -hmm. You know, great food. I'm a California That's girl, so I, yeah, you, exactly. you don't have to preach to me. Yes, I know, yeah. and I get it in one. And so yeah. you mentioned going, like, going back to school and like reconnecting yeah. with Tom in a different way. How? What yeah. do you? What about school? Let's talk about that. Is there? What do you? What interests you now? I mean, yeah. what would you want to learn about now? What would I want to learn about? I mean, what I would like to do, I think, is do some writing. So mm. I might start doing some writing, but I want to get my confidence back and mm -hmm. get up to speed first. So I want to go back to school and do a few writing classes, mm -hmm. some fiction things, see if I can actually still do it mm -hmm. or not, and then figure that out. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah. Um, just to, to touch back, I know that you're you're stepping back from matches, but um, how were you able to balance it all um, with, you know, in-store, online? I know Omnichannel is not a yeah. word we like to throw around. It yeah. sounds pretty... Yeah. Not derogatory is maybe not the right word, but how and then and then also how maybe with everybody shopping online, mobile and everything, how are how have you been able to keep people in the stores then in that sense? Um, the stores have incredible teams working mm -hmm. in them and they are so well educated mm. about product. And I always said back in the day that I w if I go into a store and someone starts to tell me something that I don't know about fashion. I'm hooked. I'm going to buy something from mm -hmm. them because mm -hmm. I love that knowledge. And so we try and make sure that as far as possible, they know all the technical product um, aspects of a Montclair jacket, mm. that they know what Adam's inspiration was, that mm -hmm. they know 
you know, why things are stitched in a certain way. So I think that's really compelling. Mm -hmm. It is storytelling, but it's got to be factual. Mm -hmm. The worst thing for me is to walk into a store and somebody say, oh, yeah, that looks really nice on. And I'm yeah, saying, no. Yeah, oh, no. that you know more than they do about the designer. Yeah, yeah you're I'm like... Not, I just want to leave. And yeah. if I get sort of drivelly platitudes thrown at me, I'm just like, you know what, no. Yeah. But the minute I hear that somebody really knows what they're doing, mm -hmm. then I'm hooked. Mm -hmm. So... I think that, mm -hmm. um, making the stores look compelling all the time, changing the inventory that's in there mm -hmm. often, having really innovative displays, so thinking about what the buyers are really interested in at that time mm -hmm. and making sure that's in a store. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's an agility that smaller stores can have, which is less easy for a big department store to manage in terms of teams and, mm -hmm. and that connection to who's working there really okay. so I think we see them more as I mean matches fashion stores are transactional mm -hmm. and they do well but we've always I mean in the past five or six years we've seen them much more as a marketing tool or mm -hmm. as a personal almost like a sort of museum where you might go for a really relaxing afternoon of hmm. inspiration to just learn and see things and if you're an appreciator of beauty, beautiful things, that that's what you get back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that's really interesting to see the to change the perspective of how you envision the store as something yeah. completely different than a. And Carlos Place will be the, yeah. the true manifestation of that. So there's two floors of retail, mm -hmm. and then there are two floors of private shopping, mm -hmm. and then the top floor is a little studio where we're going to do all sorts of Facebook Live or you know mm -hmm. podcasts, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, because that's become important now, this whole the whole influencer, the social and all of that. Yeah. Would you say that that's become a dominant thing or are you just folding that into the rest of... I think it's more about the fact that there will be a lot of storytelling going mm. on in there. So, for example, if I'm thinking about Gabriella Hurst and the fact that she's using all these sustainable fabrics mm -hmm. and she's sourcing... Her story is quite interesting, but the customer want, might want to hear more and hear it from her. Mm -hmm. um, so she'll come and talk and at the same time we might have... and I'm just imagining here what Jess might be thinking, mm -hmm. um, Livia Firth come and talk about EcoAge and her mm -hmm. work, or maybe one interviews the other. So mm -hmm. things that you can get a small group of people to come mm -hmm. and listen to, maybe 40 or 50, but you can actually send it out live mm -hmm. to millions of people at the same time mm -hmm. who might want to. So you, you've got a, a real-time thing happening that can go virtually viral. viral mm -hmm. and we've done that with the townhouse concept. that's what I was about to say the townhouse I felt like it was kind yeah. of like a fashion you know college or you know high school where you had the, the talks and then you had some of the clothing on display and then you had the dinners it was kind of this exactly 360 exactly and you know that's something that Tom and Jess really conceived together mm -hmm. and that became um, really interesting for feedback from customers but really interested in terms of Actually, the people who came were a mixture of press and customers, so we tried to combine it in a good way, and then we'd have a dinner that combined it in a really interesting way. So you get mm -hmm. a good mashup of people, but you also get a really compelling um, content for customers all, all over the place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's, I know Jess has got lots of exciting f projects planned for Carlos Place that will that will mean that lots of people want to be there and generally there's events when we've done them in townhouses mm -hmm. they're waitlisted and you know we can't it's a, you know i know it was standing amazing. room only the one when i the one i went to the it's to the, a couple so of the talks great, yeah you know, that people and also you get these tribes coming in you know if you have isabel Morant talking to a parisian audience you're, 
can get a whole bunch of women who are Yeah, that was the room I was in. It was yeah, packed, packed. Absolutely. Um, and just clever, clever sort of meeting of people and interesting hmm. people that have inspired us or you want to hear from. I always I want to ask you something that I've always felt to be true is that I've actually learned more from my failures than I have from my successes. And I wanted to know if there's a, any failure in your professional career that comes to mind where you felt like you really learned something from that, that, that you took away and you made a shift or um, I don't know. I mean, if something comes to mind. Gosh. Um, because it can't be all, you know, wine no, and roses. And you're absolutely <laughs> right. And I know that I learned from my mistakes too, mm-hmm. absolutely, and it's not all wine and roses. Um, but I don't know. I guess my brain and just turns it's like mm-hmm. childbirth, just turns the negatives back into a positive. When you learn from something, yeah. So there's nothing that springs to mind. Maybe puffball skirts or something, mm. you know, fashion clanger. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I don't feel like there's been anything. I mean, I'm sure there has, but mm-hmm. there's nothing that goes. Uh-uh, that mm-hmm. stands out as a really big awful moment mm-hmm. although I know that there are they're there okay um, it's just more that the successes stand out all right so talk I to mean, me about um a moment that you're hiring bad people you know occasionally we've done that and that's like ooh, I think the interview process is really really important and okay getting to know people um, because you have to if you have a really strong and good team you have to make sure that you get the right fit Mm-hmm. into it. I, I think that's an interesting thing. Learning that um, you know, someone's C V is not the best tool to hire somebody by. The best you know, with it, and growing matches fashion, the um, really interesting part for me was that all the interns that we took in became like senior people in the business. And hmm. you know, Cassie who's our um, I think what's, what's that title now? I mean it's some yeah. buying role that she has. Senior vice president yes. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> she came in as an inter- intern and I always cite her because she's this, you know, if you get people like that into a culture quite young and they stay with the culture and mm-hmm. they're really enjoying themselves and they're watched and nurtured, nurtured. and mentored and mm-hmm. brought up, that's the best kind of person you could have in the business. And then you could go, you need someone more senior and you can go out to somebody who's worked for the best companies and had this amazing track record and they mm-hmm. come in and they just they've learned bad habits that just don't suit your organization. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're just too slow or too clunky or whatever it is. Or yeah, you just a way don't of have the people skills to to make it work. Yeah, yeah I've seen that. I've, yeah. I've learned that as well the hard way. Yeah. Um, then And then let's flip that then. What about your a success that you're incredibly proud of? I mean, is there something that just rings out? something that you're incredibly oh I think that would also be team yeah like just working with this awesome team and building this awesome team and mm-hmm. yeah and I'm actually incredibly proud that I'm still married to this wonderful man that I've worked with for that long I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah that's, that's no small that's feat right testament. there that's a huge yeah. success I, I I agree with you yeah props that's, for that that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the good that's a really good thing to do. um can you talk a little bit about you know the power of social media, one of the things that um, I'm focused on is this idea of um, the impact that social media has to change the narrative and and influencers there that are seeing the millennials and the Gen Zs that are very, really much more, it's not so much about advertising as it is about peers telling them 
what they like and having them yeah. suggest things. Can you talk a little bit about how you're seeing that as, or how you've how you've seen that as, as somebody who's a yeah. got a brand selling I product? I think it's really an, a powerful tool for brands mm-hmm. and for um, for platforms like Matches Fashion to mm-hmm. use to get to reach out to the customer. I think that idea of community. Mm-hmm. I guess it goes back to Carlos Place as well. It's the idea of building a community who really enjoy the conversations that you're having and that that um, user, that customer, can actually have a dialogue with you mm-hmm. or with their peers is really interesting because you that does create a tribe, mm-hmm. if you like, or uh, an interesting group of people and that they can influence the way you're doing things so that feedback might not always be positive. The mm-hmm. negative feedback is also really great to get. So mm-hmm. it's like a forum and you can think about things constructively and what's working and what's not and mm-hmm. what they want to hear from. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really interesting. On Gen Z, millennials, I think millennials have probably escaped it now, but I think on Gen Z, there's we have a responsibility to um, make sure that we use models who are real, who look realistic, who are not over airbrushed, who, because I think that idea right now that everybody has to have lips that you know, look mm-hmm. like a duck and mm-hmm. a face that yeah because you can facetune every photo you ever yeah. post or yeah. you can or you have the software to make you look completely different now so nobody has a realistic vision of Absolutely. who they are and then the idea that girls might be altering their own pictures to make themselves and then how does that impact their self-esteem and that's where i think we all fashion industry and social media platforms have a big responsibility to think about that because mm-hmm. i think with that comes a lot of negative health aspects actually Mm -hmm. I agree with that all right so let's wrap this up with my five generic fashion questions so I ask (laughs) these of everybody okay what is uh, your favorite piece of clothing that you own that's the most precious thing to you hard because I have so many yes that's a tough problem to have (laughs) Um, but my favorite all-time things probably a Saint Laurent um, tweed hacking jacket yeah with a suede elbow patch that has never not been okay to wear it's always you know it's never gone out of out of date it's always looked fresh and this dates from when when did you get the god when did i get it i can't was this during eve's era no i know after eve yeah it was after eve but i think it is you know it's um i think it's been taken from the archives Mm -hmm. or developed from the archives for sure what is the one item of clothing that every woman should really invest in even women who might not have a lot of a lot of purchasing power that if there's one thing that you really just want to put money aside for what would that be oh for me it's for me personally it's always um, a pair of black trousers because I think they change and update in such subtle ways but they can really impact the look of your you know they can feel up to date it can really bring your whole look up to date black trousers never without black trousers and always have them and have two new pairs but it's good. You can never have too many no. pairs. I agree with you because I have way too many. Um, who is your favorite designer, living or dead? Oh my god! I know it's like choosing Such between children, person. but um, who is my favorite designer, living or dead? Oof. I mean, that's super hard. I can't be disloyal to anybody because I love so many. I know nobody's um, been able to give me just one. So no. if there's a there's a couple that come to mind. I 
can't tell. Okay. Say, I can't say who my favorite designer is right now. Is there one that you wear more religiously than any other? Um, like this, for your body type, for how you yeah, feel, yeah, your exactly. life? I, I mean, I wear a lot of Roxander. I wear a lot of Gabriella Hurst. I okay. wear a lot of The Row. Um, I wear a lot of Heidi Ackerman. Mm -hmm. I love Ray, the brand that we're doing at Matches Fashion. Okay. I love that. I mean, this is Ray. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that Rachel is doing a super great job there. Um, okay. And yeah. All right. Um, I'm a real wardrobe. I'm not like, I don't really buy show-stopping pieces mm -hmm. very often. I just buy the big, the good stables, fresh versions of, yeah, mm -hmm. what I already had before. I agree. When you know what works for you, when you finally figure that out, you yeah. know, then you just like invest. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, what fashion trend will you never follow? I don't think I'm a follower of trends, actually, just generally. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that might have something to do with my age. But um, I don't think I would ever wear leopard shoes. Okay, good to know. <laughs> and then finally, what do you love most about fashion? Oh, what I love most about fashion, the creativity, the fact that I think it's an art form, that it's a form of self-expression. I love people watching. I love seeing what people wear and how they've thought about how they go, you know, how they bring it. Um, but more, I love it much more on ordinary people than, you know, when I say ordinary, like, you know, if I'm sitting in a cafe in London, I really like to watch people going by mm -hmm. than the sort of fashion industry shows. The circus, the, yeah. Yeah, the circus that you see outside a show. Mm -hmm. I just think that that's quite hilarious. I know. I have to say, outside of the shows, the London London <laughs> Londoners know how to dress, man. I mean, yeah. even you know yeah. this eccentric, you know, kind of yeah. colorful way. When it's eccentric, I think it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Like you know, when people have that confidence in their own style, I mm -hmm. think it's completely brilliant. Agreed. That's why I always try to encourage people to experiment a bit and try things. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, Ruth. Thank you so much. Really Such appreciate a it. Pleasure. Really been lovely. Yeah. Me too. All right. Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss. Fashion Your Seatbelt is made possible thanks to the wonderful people at Launchmetrics, the software company that is powering the fashion industry, and GPS Radar, the members-only website where leading fashion brands and media connect in style. I am a member of GPS Radar, and I can tell you, as a journalist, it has made my work life run much more smoothly. Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.